Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host for today's episode, where we will be speaking with Dr. Noelle McAfee um, on her book, Fear of Breakdown, Politics and Psychoanalysis, excuse me, Columbia University Press, 2019. Uh, Dr. McAfee is a professor of philosophy, as well as the director of the Psychoanalytic Studies Program at Emory University. Her books include Habermas, Kristeva, and Citizenship, Julia Kristeva, and Democracy and the Political Unconscious, three separate books. We welcome her to um, our show and um, look forward to um, discussing her very um, exciting and um, thought-provoking ideas um, that pertain uh, to our moment in ways that... um, uh, well, it promises, this promises to be a generative interview. That's all the best I can say. Um, so welcome. Uh, welcome to our show. Um, so our first question um, is for all of the um, authors that we speak to is we like to ask about motivation. Um, so would you like to tell us a little bit about what you know about, to the degree you can know about your motivations, what motivated the writing um, of this book? Oh, thank you. First, Tracy, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a super big honor, and I'm delighted and looking forward to this. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, motivation for the book. It's like how far back in my own history do you want to go? I won't go all that. <laughs> we accept all answers. <laughs> you know, I guess something in me is always looking for justice and, and really troubled by the lack of it. Uh, for years, I've thought that about my work as at the intersection of subjectivity and public life, literally right there at that intersection. So where um, the kinds of people we are, what kind of politics allows us to show up in the world and shape the world, um, and then conversely, what kind of phenomena keep us from having a place and a say in the world, whether it's other people and other forces and power and all that, or it's our own troubles. So that's been my interest uh, for years. I started off back in my 20s working uh, in Washington, D.C. I'd gotten a master's in public policy and was interested in fighting the good fight. And then I worried that no amount of fighting the good fight would work if people weren't really interested in or capable of self-government. So I thought I have to figure this out. And I went back to, for some reason, I thought philosophy would help. And on the way there, I'd gotten interested in Julia Kristeva as a kind of French, quote unquote, a French feminist thinker. Um, and that kind of pulled me into the world of psychoanalysis, too, thinking about, um, again, the forces that help create our subjectivity. So that was for many years. My work was on democracy and um, and how it, would, it was possible that we could be strangers to ourselves and still work collectively with others to shape the world, right? You know, the problem of false consciousness. I mean, how, that seems like so often people do things that are contrary to their self-interest, that we are strangers to ourselves, don't know ourselves. 
So that was my question, and I was very much an optimist. Um, that that took a bit of a turn after 9-11, um, especially when people in power were saying things like, we do not talk with the enemy. And I thought, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we talk? Really? Should, so that was the motivation for Democracy and the Political Unconscious. My previous book was really about the kind of talking cure that could be had through a more deliberative uh, democratic politics. This book, so I was going to spell that out more. That was uh, what I, when I started writing this several years ago, I was going to spell out what that looks like more. And along the way, I got interested in um, more interest in psychoanalysis and started taking courses at the our institute here at Emory, Emory University Psychoanalytic Institute, along with other candidates to become analysts. And, um, and along the way, read Winnicott. So this is a rather long answer to your question, but read some Winnicott and it was a few years ago and read that essay that I know, you know, on a fear of breakdown. And he was talking about, you know, sometimes we have to explain to our more psychotic patients that this fear they have, doctor, I'm going to fall apart. Doctor, I'm going to die. Doctor, I feel so empty. Doctor, I'm going to have a breakdown that this fear they have of something terrible to happen is actually um, an agony over something that already happened, but they were too um, incapable at the time to take it in. So the point of analysis with these patients is to help them take in the breakdown that already happened and put it into the past. So uh, in the background, (laughs) right? can't remember what year that was, but that was right about the time that yeah, Donald Trump was running for president. And so reading that, and along in that essay, it's a very cryptic essay, because he talks about these agonies that get um, triggered, these primitive or like primordial, archaic agonies. Um, and one is uh, the this fear of falling apart triggers a uh, defense of, of self-holding, to hold oneself together. So I thought about that. And this fear of self hold this this need for self holding um, reminded me of okay the great political slogan of our time to make America great again that Donald Trump's we're going to make America great again because we're going to otherwise fall apart they're going to destroy us is exactly like a fear of breakdown it's a fantasy that something terrible in the future is going to happen so there's a need to cling to some great moment in the past, which is a complete delusion. We were never great. And so there's a kind of, we can talk about this more, but this strange looping of time to to regress to a fantasy of some perfect time in the past to ward off a breakdown of the future. So reading that, it just clicked that so many of these phenomena could be read, that we can talk about today, can be read through that lens. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Vera. I was going to, the second question I was going to ask you was, um, you know, let's lay out the bare bones of fear breakdown, but I, I think that you've just done that for us. So just to alert the listeners, um, you've um, now, if you don't know the work of Winnicott and you don't know this essay, um, I think it's just been uh, um, given a good, um, uh, a good description. Um, I wanted to ask you also, can you define for the listeners, how you're using the word politics. Well, that's good. Well, um, I do not mean the standard definition. If you look it up some places, you'll get what was Max Weber's definition, which was politics is the 
monopoly on forces, you know, coercive forces, uh, or that's what politics is, those who have that power. And that, that makes me my skin crawl, that answer. I see politics more along the lines of um, the practice of deciding what to do when we do not agree with each other and there is no right or agreed upon answer. So in the face of uncertainty and the need to act to do something, we engage in politics, right? So I'm, I borrow that from Benjamin Barber who lays that out in Strong Democracy. Yeah, so it, it that's what democracy is. now. There are different forms of democracy. Um, whoever gets to take part in the task of deciding what ought to be done is uh, a citizen. They're, they have the power of citizenship. In a monarchy, there's one citizen, that's the king. In a democracy, everyone is supposed to have that power. So I see democracy as this broad, public, you know, potentially widespread practice of all who are affected by matters of common concern being able to help shape those. So that would be a democratic politics. There's lots of different forms, but it also is about that trying to decide what to do or what to, you know, what to, not just to problem solve, but to what to create, what to do next uh, when we don't agree. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I have um, had so many thoughts about um, what it means to participate, how to participate. Um, I guess I'm going to ask you kind of a, a a question from the point of view, like thinking myself as a clinician, you have, um, uh, what, is, what do you say? Oh, democratic politics, you write, calls for growing up, moving beyond black and white thinking, learning to live with uncertainty and ambivalence. Um, it's sort of a paraphrase, I think, but more or less that I think is an idea that you um, sort of need throughout the book, K-N-E-A-D throughout the book. But I wonder if I myself am ready for such political practice. Um, because of the difficulty of um, actually growing up, moving beyond black and white thinking, learning to live with uncertainty and ambivalence. Um, and I'm wondering, like, a que- I, I, said, I asked myself, well, so how does, let's say, the melancholic take part? Like, who, who can participate in this, by deliberation, um, what what's being argued here is it's more of a face to face, right? We're gonna we're gonna listen to each other. We're gonna hear each other. We're gonna hear things we don't like to hear. We're gonna have ideas put toward us that are gonna arouse very um, difficult feelings. Sometimes anger. Sometimes a desire to annihilate because the the, the idea coming toward us feels so threatening. Like, is there, I mean, who gets to participate? Yeah, let me hold off on that question because there's a, a, a something missing between what I just said about what politics is and what you quoted. So the missing part is that, okay, so let's say here we have a practice, we have to decide what to do when we don't agree with each other. Now, the let's say the melancholic, and we can explain that more, the person who's not grown up is going to say, damn it, we're going to do what I want. And what you want is reprehensible, unacceptable, and no, no, no. So that from that kind of position, the, the person who's engaging in politics isn't actually in, interested in engaging or dealing with the uncertainty and disagreement. They just want to stamp their feet and have their own way, right? So to really engage in politics and trying to solve problems with others, and Hannah Arendt is a real deep resource for me, and plurality, when different points of view, 
different aspirations, um, different ways of seeing the world. If we're really seriously going to engage in plurality and difference with others, we need to be willing to take up and consider their other points of view. That's why it means growing up, because the person who's going to cling to their own ideal or their fantasy or whatever, they might be right, but they're only willing to deal with their own. They're not ready to engage in this difference. So what, tell me again your question that... Um, well, I was, I was just thinking about who gets, who, who's, in, who's in the room. And, and here's another thing. I, what your book really raises is that we've lost... Um, you know, under the reign of, uh, you know, the, of neoliberalism, we've, we've lost sort of the, uh, we've lost associations, associative space, places where people are coming together to um, hash out, you know, what to do. Um, how do we deal with the resources that, you know, we, we have that we need for this or for that, how that, that, the, that, that space in and of itself has shrunk. So I love what you're talking about. I love the idea of deliberating um, together. And yet I'm like, when's the last time I participated? And I, and I was very involved with ACT UP in the late 1980s, which was a, you know, a, a group run by Robert's Rules of Orders, 700 people in a room here in New York City every Monday night, like deliberating. Um, but, but I, like, even that space has disappeared. So there's, there was something very um, that aroused some longing in me when I was reading the book. I was like, where, where do we even deliberate together anymore? Um, so I'm not I really... You, I bet you've been involved in deliberation in your institute when you're trying to decide what to do on some question or even with your, in your family or with your friends when you're trying to decide what to do. I mean, these are all... So deliberation isn't just solely a political activity. It's what we do all the time. You know, are we going to, is anybody going to actually go into a store or go to a barbershop? That calls for a lot of deliberation, right? What, what are the consequences? What will happen? What are we willing to do? Deliberation is having to tarry with different possible choices, each with their consequences, losses, right? I mean, if I go in one direction, I really need to be willing to deal with all the loss of what I give up by not going in another direction or what I'm going to lose by going here rather than there. So I, I see deliberation as really an affective process of dealing with the consequences of any course of action. So if we're doing that mentally, right, um, we're deliberating. Georgia, I live in Georgia. Our governor has opened up the state. I can go get a tattoo this afternoon. I have not tempted the least bit, but you know anything that I might do, um, uh, it's calling for an active deliberation about having to make a difficult choice, and that happens in our organizations. And and so I don't make a because I you know call politics is a very widespread thing. Whenever we're trying to address matters of common concern, there's not a sharp line between what's political or social or personal. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and something, um, I think another important, another important point made by the book is the role of, um, feelings, uh, in, in politics. Um, there's some, somewhere you say something like, you know, political philosophy, um, has the idea that, um, thinking is, is, uh, has, has to do with the reasoning and you bring, you say, well, actually, since we're strangers to ourselves and at some level driven by um, motivations and by feelings, we don't 
we understand uh, in the afterwards, um, you are arguing for, um, I guess that we should all expect to have, uh, have difficult feelings when um, we take part in uh, deliberative and in deliberations, that it's, it's, that we shouldn't expect to be, um, it shouldn't necessarily be, we shouldn't expect to feel great, but um, there's an, there's an expectable uh, amount of discomfort. Um, And yet we do live in a moment where, um, you know, in a culture that says, you know, you can choose how you feel. You know, that's a, a neoliberal slogan, if I've ever heard one. And patients come in terrorized by that idea. Well, I could, if I could just, I'm going to choose how I feel about this. And I was like, well, when's the last time that you know feelings um, were ever, uh, um, ever listened to, um, listened to a choice? So, uh, listen to, you know, sort of my conscious mind. Don't feel this. And so I was thinking about it's kind of a tough. Your argument is. Um, a, how, how do we how do we put forth um, and begin to insist upon uh, the role of feelings in in decision making in the political in the political realm? Um, any yeah, thoughts? So the, the background there is a, often what I part of my work my area is called a deliberative democracy, and in in philosophy and in political theory political science, the people who do that are often talking about reason as if it's were some separate uh, <coughs> excuse me <coughs> separate faculty devoid of feeling sorry I had a sip of water um, so, and I just don't go there at all I mean for one thing reason you know comes from the all the, the Greek logos word and back in Homer's time, um, the the roots of that was basically someone speaking to themselves. Menelaos Ipe, he spoke to himself. So thinking was taking the social activity of back and forth dialogue with someone else and internalizing it and have a back and forth with oneself. That's all that logos is. It's not like a logic exam, right? It's think. It's offering. It's talking back and forth. Well, I could maybe go. Um, do this, uh, but then I think, but what about that? So I'm I'm entertaining different possibilities and uh, responding to them. So somebody gives me a reason. They say, well, we should do this because of X, Y, Z. That's going to elicit feelings in me, maybe of excitement or fear. Um, that you know these. So I'm entertaining the reasons, and they bring up feelings. These are not separate things. So. Where so much of political theory thinks about deliberative democracies, it's about right, reason. I'm bringing in there's this is there's always affect, and in fact, real deliberation. This seems so obvious to me, but I, uh, I might be kind of alone. Real deliberation. No, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> okay. Real deliberation, um, as I said, means g- dealing with loss. So there's a, a phrase in political theory. Public will formation, some fancy term for when people have deliberated, reasoned through something, and developed a public will. That we should do this and not that. Mm-hmm. But what is will, public will? And any analyst knows that it's it's what one has come to having worked through all the feelings and anxieties, whatever, ghosts, worked through them and come out the other side, right? So deliberation will lead to 
a public will when people have become willing to pay for something, really, in whatever sense. What about um, thinking about Winnicott and your use of Winnicott? Um, I don't know if you refer, you, you might, and I might have just missed it, um, uh, also his essay, The Use of an Object. And I was thinking about um, whether to enter into um, deliberative democratic practices, um, one has to be ready to survive destruction, being destroyed. Um, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Wow, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about that. We can think about it right now. Okay. <laughs> so um, I haven't, yeah, so being, usually, I mean, I think of the, the Winnicott essays from the point of view of the one who's going to use the object, mm-hmm. um, in knowing that if the object is destroyed, well, the object will carry on, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, that, yeah. yeah, so it's, Do you want me to to tell you? I mean, I was just, I was thinking about the ways in which in order to get to the place where, um, you know, the idea is that the, you know, the, the baby destroys and, you know, destroys the needed object, the needed object survives destruction, then um, the baby can then begin to um, maybe deliberate (laughs) a little bit like that, that deliberation. um, We don't just get to the place where we can, can be able to, you know, stand looking at difference. It's very, can be very challenging, right? I mean, you know, we, we, you know, my patients, you know, don't want to enter into group analysis, which I run groups and I do group and individual. It's part of the modern psychoanalytic sort of mode in me. And, but many patients don't want to, you know, let's say be in a group because the experience of difference, sharing and loss all come to the fore. They have to share me, they have to lose the fantasy that I am um, just there for them, et cetera. So I'm just thinking about like when we're, you know, like when, when things break down as they can break down, when people are trying to make decisions about, you know, imperfect situations, um, that to get to a place where we can hear each other, often we have to um, see that the other can tolerate our, our worst. And then we have someone who we can actually talk to and see as somebody who is, who is like us. Like I'm a little skeptical about how do we get, how given uh, narcissistic vulnerability and fragility, how do we get people to, to work together? I think that it's, it's extraordinarily challenging and it's beautiful and amazing when it happens, but I don't know. So uh, the use of an object came to mind. I don't know if that. Yeah. I think, um, what comes to my mind is that, as I was saying before, somebody who's not really will, willing to engage in difference and uh, consider other points of view and it's clinging to their own ideal, right, um, and cannot tolerate entertaining other ideals, is, I believe, worried that if they, to- if they consider other points of view, that their own ideals will be destroyed. So that the need to kind of protect them and ward away any alternatives is the fear that one's own ideals cannot survive that kind of plurality of points of view. So it it is. um, And that's why I I really, I find it problematic kind of politics of demands. This group has listed their demands and the rest of us are supposed to go along. Maybe their demands are perfectly good, right? I mean, they can be 
uh, in my university, there was a group that had demands and the faculty took them up and just said, how are we going to meet these demands? And I want to say, well, can we talk about these? I and mean, why are these just black and white demands rather than um, options for us to consider together? Maybe we can get to a, another place that's even better or some alternative rather than that. So I don't know if it's exactly, it's kind of like the use of an object, but I think that the, the, um, the worry is whether one's own political ideals will survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether will I survive? Will my ideals survive? I need my ideals to help me survive the fact that I'm, you know, I'm so lacking anyway. So um, you know, taking away any of those ideals, um, you know, does, you know, can pose a very um, a, a terrible threat. Um, I wanted to, actually, I wanted to ask you something. Uh, recently I had a back and forth with a friend and I mean really recently, like a month ago. So, you know, as time has collapsed and gotten very strange um, during the pandemic, um, here in New York City, every night at 7 p.m., we open our windows and we clap for the essential workers. And um, about a month ago, uh, um, we didn't have sufficient a sufficient uh, cache of uh, ventilators here in the city, and it was pretty terrifying. And it was clear who's you know who's who's going to die, who was going to be not given a ventilator. Like all of those questions um, were were upon us. Um, and I was wondering why, in a moment where lives are hanging in the balance, are we silently, are we, are we not using words? Why are we just clapping? And um, why aren't we also, I said, yelling out our windows, send us the ventilators. Like, what if the whole city erupted into, like, a chant like that? And I, I ran, I was talking to a friend who's a, a very Kleinian friend, actually, um, and uh, she said, well, people are grieving and they're showing gratitude and it's not a time to make, as she said, demands. And I asked, I said, well, where's the anger that people feel about being treated so poorly? I mean, the government seems and has seemed hell bent on extinguishing life. Right. So, so was the gratitude a defense? Uh, were we complicit? Were we cowed? Uh, anyway. And I, and I know that, you know, in what you're talking about, and you have a critique of those who, who make demands. But I said to her, well, you know, sometimes the paranoid schizoid position is not exactly the worst thing for politics. She was like, what are you crazy? Anyway, I, <laughs> but, but, fr- but from that point of view, I mean, you know, when I was with ACT UP, we made demands. We weren't negotiating. Of course, we were from the point of view of like the differends, the Leotardian differends. So you know, and then ACT UP was followed by Occupy Wall Street, which didn't like demands. I like demands. They, of course, imply negotiation afterwards, but at least you put out the limit of like, this is really what we'd like to see happen. Yeah, there's uh, different so- moments in politics. So, that, so in the heart of the book are these what I call six democratic practices. Um, and some of them look like demands. I think the movements for um, protesting, um, mass demonstrations are moves to put things on the agenda. I I call it my third one, identifying and thematizing problems, consciousness raising, setting the agenda. And that often is on the part of activist social movements to demand that we need to take up climate change or demand that we have more PPE, right? Whatever um, personal protective equipment, whatever it is that we need to put that on the agenda. But as you just said, of course, later they will negotiate. And so after 
we put something on the agenda or in the process, then there's the other step, which is to deliberate and um, and and take up different ways of you know trying to achieve what figure out what we want and how are we going to get it? How are we going to do that? So there are different moments. Yeah, I, I want to go back to something about um, the the kind of um, entertaining different points of view. So yeah, I, I started off by invoking the fear of breakdown in Donald Trump. This happens on all sides, right? It, it, it happens on all sides. And it's so difficult to even acknowledge um, what is behind an alternative point of view, because there's a, I mean, I, I find this, if I'm going to try to acknowledge what um, is important and understandable about somebody who I completely disagree with politically. Yeah, let's just say um, you know, some conservative Christian evangelical who thinks that you know we've got to open up the economy. But whatever it is, if, I, if, if I'm going to entertain and engage in politics with some others, I need to try to understand what's um, legitimate about their point of view. And it's hard to do that. I mean, it's hard to do that because you think people are going to think I've lost my mind, but it's hard to say, well, I can see that some people are motivated truly by loyalty or uh, faith. And that's not, so it's hard to, it's hard. This is hard work to try to truly engage with others with whom we disagree. That's what I wanted to say about that. Yes. Well, absolutely. Because we don't, you know, life with like a mirror held up before us, um, you know, is uh, is simple, but it's not actually engaging um, with uh, with difference. Um, yeah, it's funny. I just as you were talking, I was thinking of my cousin who lives in Atlanta, and he is an evangelical Christian. He is my closest family member. We are as close as close could be, but we dis- we and we agree down the line about many many things politically, but abortion. And on occasion, I make sure that we we talk. And I ask questions, I try to listen, and he tries to listen. And I I have to say, actually, you know, that it's, we we never come to the same place, but there is something about our relationship that has a durability to it because we encounter each other's different points of view and we listen, we hear, Neither of us has changed our position, but I would say our relationship has an incredible intimacy precisely because we don't shy away from the thing that, or an issue that is, that we have so such strong feelings about that we actually take the time, not, you know, every time we talk, but probably like three times a year. I think I initiate it more than he does, but anyway, but I want us to talk to not, just skirt to just skirt the issue. And it creates an intimacy uh, that, um, that with friends who we, who I agree, you know, we agree, we agree, we agree. It's not, there's a different kind of intimacy that comes from it. So that, that's the upside. I mean, the motivation. Um, Yeah. And also, so in addition to just thinking about this stuff academically or psychoanalytically over the years, I've been involved in actual deliberative forums with people in, the public um, for many, many uh, years. And what I've noticed and others have noticed is that when people from different backgrounds, beliefs, 
et cetera, uh, get together and, and deliberate, they walk away saying, you know, I didn't really change my view, but I sure changed my view of her view and her. So there was one uh, deliberative forum where we had, it was back in the 90s, the quintessential, you know, rich lady from New York, uh, and her fur, Republican from New York in her fur coat, and the welfare mother, quote unquote, from the projects in Chicago. And they were talking about um, family values and health care and stuff like that. And they they didn't agree at the end, but they both said, wow, she actually loves her children. <laughs> As if that was just, this person's human. I mean, they have, that's what happens in, in a polarized politics. People can demonize each other. And that's what we've got. I mean, I, that was one of the big motivations for this book was the kind of rampant demonization um, and turning others into stick figures, cartoon characters, inhuman. Uh, and it, it's, it's, there's no way that we can move ahead if we are stuck in that. Right, right. And it's also the, the relief um, that is felt, um, I think needs, it, it's worth emphasizing, you know, to think about like when you move beyond that demonization, you realize how much of your own psychic energy was invested in that demonization, how little psychic energy you had to use for other purposes. I mean, and I can feel like, and it's almost like the pleasure of, of, of having your paranoid schizoid moment is the relief you, you have when you let go of it and you take in the difference, you know, the demonization disappears. It's like you, I, I don't know, but I see it you know, in myself. I see it in my patients. I see it in my friends. Like, it's like always like, wow, it was almost worth having the paranoid schizoid thought just to experience to get rid of it. And you know, put both feet back on the ground, you know. Um, yeah. And, and you're using the Kleinian terms. And so, uh, you know, I want to just point out that for people listening, that I'm very emotive, I mean, very informed um, by Klein, uh, what she calls these uh, primitive, I'm trying not to use the word primitive, archaic primordial uh, defenses are um, what happens to groups too, right? So in the political group can start to do this with other groups. So we regress to these archaic positions um, and demonize the other. It's, it's, that, it's that very phenomenon that she was talking about, about small children, we can see in whole groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question. I've been wanting to ask somebody this question, and I think your book really... Um, brings you you make use of, of of mourning and i've been thinking a lot about the um the concept of mourning maybe has reached a saturation point in applied psychoanalysis according to me okay not according to anybody else but according to me um you know from judith butler onward you know whenever that essay gender melancholy you know um how long how old is that essay like 1999 or something um but I'm wondering about, you know, our use of mourning as a kind of um, theoretical panacea. Um, and I don't know if you have, have, you know, you use mourning. I like how you use mourning. I, you know, it's not, I, I'm not against mourning, you know, I'm like, I, I think, but I, but mourning, first of all, cannot be um, commanded, demanded, or people can't be, can't be brought to it. It's a process and it, one can develop the capacity to mourn. I've met many people who have never that capacity um, 
is uh, not coming uh, to um, full fruition in them anytime soon. Um, but I wonder about this. Um, in our clinging to mourning or in our use of mourning, are we not leaving the more thorny domain of human aggression and destructiveness unattended to? Um, like, you know, violence is a refusal to mourn. Okay, I get that. And but if we play down, if we play down the role of the tribes, are we at risk of minimizing a crucial aspect of what it means to be human? You know, like because mourning is a, is mourning is easy for people to deal with. Like, oh, it's it's nice, it's civilized, etc. But we're also I'm a, I definitely am a drive theorist. I'm like, we, we take pleasure in destructive acts. Well, I don't know. Where, you, where, where do we get this idea that mourning is nice and civilized? I mean, if somebody's in, in, in grief, they're raging, they're angry. It's, it's, I mean, when I, when I've lost people who are important to me, I am not just nice and civilized. I'm a mess. And I'm grieving, and I'm raging. And that it's a it's a process. It, it it's difficult. Um, well, by the time we finally come out, you know, and can like, reconfect with the world and all, it might look more nice and civilized. But it's a, through a process that can look a lot like um, rage and aggression. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. But I. <laughs> There's just something about it that I'm I'm thinking like, you know, the the failure to mourn. I see more the failure to mourn than the capacity to mourn. Maybe it's just because that's my job. I sit in my office and I see, you know, the failure to mourn. Um, maybe that's who you know ends up on the couch, right? Failures in, in mourning. Um, but it it almost it just seems to me like a little bit too easy of an answer like that, that we're turning, you know, it's MacIvor and, um, you know, Mari Rudy. I mean, people are writing about mourning. I just, I don't know. I, just as a clinician, I, I keep thinking, what, what about human destructiveness and what do we do with human destructiveness? Because that seems to me a real, as much a problem as the failure to mourn. And I wouldn't say that human destructiveness is only the failure to mourn. But anyway, I like like in, in all the splitting that we have, we can say, oh well, there's a failure to mourn. But there's also just a pleasure in destructiveness. Uh, you know, where how does how does that fit into our thinking about the about this current world? Um, so I, I'm not expecting you to have the answer, and maybe well, I, just... I I I think we might have different views about aggression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I. I listened to your interview with Ben Fong, which I found very interesting. And I, I, I love his book. I've learned his book. Mm -hmm. um, and what, you know, partly what I take from that and from reading Freud is that, you know, so a lot of times this all, the theory of aggression begins with the death drive. Um, and, and then um, beyond the pleasure principle, it's trying to understand how people can engage in things that are so painful over and over and over again, uh, and likening it to kind of falling back into the primordial ooze and losing oneself. And then, and then somewhere Freud turns it around. And so it, uh, you know, the death drive turned outward is aggression. And that now must be this innate thing. I, I just, I, I don't follow that move. 
that move, that, uh, that aggression is some innate practice. You view it as, as based on frustration or? Yeah, I think it's a misfire. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it happens. I mean, when we, through loss, we can feel a lot of rage. Um, oh, for sure. Um, which is, again, kind of a primitive or there I go again. Primordial clinging to something that was lost, not wanting to let go of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think of it, if you think of aggression as driven by frustration, it's it's a right. I, I it's very it's very different than just human beings are you know man is wolf to man kind of thing. I mean those those two like there's not yeah it's it's hard because they're just very 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 different arguments. Um, actually, let me ask you something. I loved where. Hold on one second. I want to just grab it here. You had something to say. Um, oh, here we go. Um, about the relational view. And when we first spoke, um, Noelle and I spoke a week ago, just in preparation for the interview. And you said, oh, are you relational? And I was like, no, no, no. Um, but you write about relational psychoanalysis and, um, and you're a real fan of Andre Green, as am I. Um, and, um, you write, quote, what if relational views, and I'm adding about mutual recognition between mother and baby from the get-go, um, with their suppositions about early development are fundamentally wrong? If so, to adopt such views could ignore could risk ignoring certain constant dangers that beset political uh, practice. Um, this is, I think, part also of a critique you have of um, Axel Honneth's use of, uh, of, of Winnicott, right? Um I wanted to ask if you could share with us some of your hesitations about um, the relational psychoanalytic project, because they do seem the the concept of democracy in the clinic is, is, is I would argue potentially at the heart co-creation of the relational work. And, um, and yet you seem to have a, a different, a different take. And, and that in this, this fascinated me. So I wanted to ask if you could talk to us a little bit about it. If, uh, if I've understood yeah, that's ri- correctly. That's a rich question. Um, yeah. So it, I was raised philosophically with the view that we're, you know, all human beings are social creatures. And I believe that entirely we are social creatures that we um, cannot know the world by ourselves, but with other people. That's all true, right? So in in democracy is a co-creation. But we're born into the world um, necessarily deluded. We're we're born into the world helpless, completely dependent on others for our life. And if if that origin is good enough, um, we we are given this wonderful delusion that we're omnipotent and everything is fine, right? So we're born into what Freud's problematic term, primary narcissism, I prefer to call it plenum, into a kind of sense of well-being that all is met. My my bottoms are dry, milk you know, fills, all is met. And that is, then we're gradually disillusioned that and come to realize that there's a part of the world that's not me, right? I find this very, very compelling. And all of the thinkers that I have been uh, persuaded by, I uh, over the years I realized, and they all agree with me on this. I agree with them <laughs> that we're born with this um, delusion of being all powerful and that all needs are met. So in that delusion, it's not like there's self and other. It's all me, all one. There's no self other 
distinction at all. So the baby watchers, you know, I think important research and all of that that say, look, they can track the baby's eye movements and they immediately attract their primary caregivers more as evidence that there is a that babies are relational from the start, from the moment. And I just think that's false. And Andre Green's famous essay, um, if we get something like, like, like something about science fiction, you know that piece? Uh, basically that trying to discern the uh, mental life of an infant by watching its eyes move is like trying to discern the contents of a book by watching someone reading it. <laughs> We have no idea about the inner world of the child. <laughs> so, I mean, this is all... You know, he had a dry knows. sense of humor, didn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we don't know what's going on in the baby. But it, 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 the, the reason this matters for me is that if something goes wrong early on in that state, that necessary state of being deluded, and we can talk about that, um, if something goes wrong, then the path to sociality is really fraught. And it, it can go wrong. So to say that we're social from the start kind of misses the point, but what if we do not become social in a productive way? What if the mother, and this Andre Green again with the dead mother, what if the mother is depressed or um, dies in a car wreck or the father, and so the primary caregiver is just not able to, uh, to, to create in me that illusion, then I don't have this um, ballast, this capacity that, that, I, that I go, that carries me through life. That early moment of delusion gives me a capacity to survive in the world. And without that, so I'm in a bad place. I could become a false self. I not, might not know how to really function well in the world or how to have meaningful relationships. That's, that's a developmental stage to become that social being that we all are. So that, that's uh, there's a lot in there, but that's the that's the that's the root of my disagreement with the relational people is that it's just too pat an answer to say we're social from the start. But what if we're not? We need to really attend to how that happens and what can go wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. To be able to um, to right. So the capacity to deliberate is you know developmental. You know, it's a developmental achievement, and we're not born with the capacity to deliberate. I mean, I wish, you know, and to, and to listen to each other because there's no one else but, our, but ourselves. I, I like primary narcissism um, as, as a concept because I think it does just kind of gives us a, a grounding um, for what that experience is. Um, your, your book takes us into a place. I was, I, um, you're, you have a chapter on, um, uh, what the heck is it? On, just going to look here and um, I, I call it mothers and nations, but that's not what the chapter is called. That was like my shorthand nationalism and the fear of breakdown, AKA motherhood. And, <laughs> and which was just a, just a beautiful, um, like, I don't, was that ever a standalone piece? I, I, Oh, really? That's really good. It just stand. It just you could pull it. I mean, you can pull chapters what's out of this book just singularly. Although some really, it really works well together. In my my opinion, like the sort of the eight chapters that are you know laying out like what does this kind of different vision of democracy with an awareness of fear of breakdown look like? But the chapter on I'm just going to call mothers and nations it's not the name of it. it it is it's a standalone and if you if you 
get this book and you don't go get to read through the whole book, I just thought it was just a beautiful, wonderful um, argument. Um, I don't really have a question about it. I just wanted yeah, to let you know. It's, I it's interesting because um, I was in writing this book, um, the material that's in the heart of the book on the six democratic practices, it's wedged between the introduction introductory chapters that take us to thinking about politics and the fear of breakdown using Winnicott. And then at the end of those six democratic practices comes back to what's laid out in that chapter on fear of breakdown and takes it into the, into the realm of nationalism. And this is a, a, something I'm continuing to work on and thinking about, we want to call it populism, um, demagoguery, a, a phenomenon that's really taking over the world. Um, so how do we think about that? What's the root of that? So that was a lot of fun. And then I really went out on a limb, I think, because I'd been reading with um, Mari Ruti um, Lacan's seminar on anxiety, where he's really making fun. You know, the root of anxiety is the masculine or male fear of their, their flagging penis that can't get it up next to women's voracious desire. Right, right. So what if, in, one thing that you, I was reading some other books, that you see in kind of the hyper-nationalism is this anxiety of a hyper-nationalists tend to um, treat their enemies as pathetic and sick and awful, but their enemies have one power, superpower, and that's their the male's virile sexuality. Mm-hmm. So this notion that um, the others are trying to get our women is perhaps an actual anxiety that our women are not satisfied and they're going to go over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's just a few paragraphs. Um, but that was a lot of fun. It's very powerful, those paragraphs. <laughs> I got yeah. them. I was like, oh, she's going to go there. Woo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's something that would be fun to continue to, to think through. And it really is a, a different thinking about, way of thinking about um, uh, women. The, the, uh, as I put it here, I, I quote uh, Winnicott. The woman figure of primitive unconscious fantasy has no limits to her existence or power. You know, I take him to mean that the group's internal fear of woman is so powerful that it is willing to trade away freedom and democracy for a dictator who will keep women's power in check. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's you can, those couple of paragraphs where you're talking about, you know, the 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 enemy is virile um, is extraordinarily virile it's it's almost as if they're highlighted in like bright even though they're not like they read that I just want you to know I, I was like whoa 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 okay it was like neon there was something neon in it all um, wow. I, yeah so so I could tell I I I had the feeling that there was a lot of feeling behind yes. It. Yeah, I'm starting a new project on I'm doing for a little press on on feminism's quick immersion series, and mm-hmm. I'm really it's a fun because it's not I, I'm not I'm not supposed to have any footnotes just talk you know speculate and um, withdraw on others. So I'm looking at I mean, how did how did women become the second sex? Right, really? and it's I mean we can look at the history and there is a historical record the Neolithic and agriculture and blah blah blah. But there's also the powerful imaginary that comes with that about yeah. how the world hangs together and who has power and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the primitive or primordial anxieties underneath these metaphysical constructs. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, the Jacqueline Rose interview. I would totally refer you to that because it, her book, Mother's an Essay on Love and Cruelty, um, it just just gets, she just, she has so many, she comes at this question from so many different ways. I think that even if you don't have to like use footnotes, so that's great, but, but you might just like, I think you two would be in a very good conversation with each other. Um, Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, when I read your chapter, I was like, Oh, it reminded me of, of, um, you know, Jacqueline's book. So, um, I think that you would, you know, you, you wouldn't have to deliberate. You would just have a mirror held up and enjoy it. Okay. (laughs) Good. <laughs> which which we which we all need um gosh well we're at we're actually over um we're over 50 minutes so um that means that we should be drawing Doctor, things our time is up <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to stop oh. there for today <laughs> <That'll>, oh. yes <laughs> and we'll leave it on that note <laughs> okay till, thank till you tomorrow. so much Okay. <laughs> anyway, this was terrific. Um, thank you so much for um, for joining us, and um, I think uh, giving us a really a lot. Um, and then we could be on the phone for on the phone and on recording on the phone um, for another hour because there are so many ideas um, in in the book. We didn't get to your critique of Judith Butler's melancholic subject. We didn't get to your critique of Habermas. If, listeners, it's there. Okay. <laughs> All of that is there. And it's really um, what, you, what you have to say about Butler. So good. I've always been confused why her essay never sat as well with me as I wanted it to. And you helped me to, to get closer to it. But we have to stop. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been delightful. Okay. So, um, dear all, uh, I'm signing off for now. I believe that the next book... Um, up is going to be um, M. Fakri David's intern. Oh my gosh, did I just screw that up? Internal racism, um, and I'm not sure when I'm doing that interview, but probably um, you know here with the pandemic, probably within the next uh, six weeks, I hope to be speaking um, with Dr. Fakri David's and um, again, uh, Dr. Noel McAfee. Thank you for joining us. All for now. <laughs>